Last week I tried to show from verses 25 and 26 of that text that the biggest problem, the most basic problem that the death of the Son of God was designed to solve was the problem that God looks unrighteous in passing over so many sins that deserve punishment which they don't get. I tried to show that right at the heart of the Old Testament in Exodus 32 on Mount Sinai at the giving of the law we have this glorious revelation the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness showing steadfast love to thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin That means passing over iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the God that was revealed on top of Mount Sinai at the very center of the law. A God who passes over iniquity, transgression, and sin. And I said that until we get a God-centered grip on the meaning of sin and the meaning of righteousness the problem of the cross will never ever make sense to us. It won't even make sense that God had a problem to solve until we have a God-centered handle on what sin is and what righteousness. Sin, I said, is not so much a crime against man. It's a crime against God. Sin is always preferring something in the world to God. And thus it belittles God. It says, your glory is not worth very much. Your name is dishonored. You just don't mean very much to me. I choose this alternative, which you have said is not wise and not good. Sin is always a belittling of God's glory and honor and name. Righteousness, on the other hand, is exactly the opposite. Righteousness is the upholding of God's glory. It's doing what is ultimately right, namely putting God first and lifting up the honor of God, the name of God, and the glory of God and saying, you're valuable. The the two are diametrically opposed. Sin belittles the glory of God by choosing against Him and righteousness magnifies the glory of God by choosing for Him. Now when God passes over sin, which is a belittling of God, it looks like he's saying, I don't count. I'm cheap. My glory is cheap. My name is cheap. My honor is cheap. We'll let bygones be bygones. We'll sweep the sin of the universe under the rug. It doesn't really matter because I'm no big deal. And if that's what God was doing, he is unrighteous and we are without hope. It matters what the main problem of the cross was designed to solve, namely the problem of the righteousness of God looking so belittled, impugned. How can God be righteous and just pass over sins that make Him look cheap? And the answer is, He didn't just pass over them. He killed His Son to show how crucial and utterly, infinitely important is 
his glory and the vindication of his name and his honor and his righteousness. God didn't let sin go unpunished. And so the death of his son is a loud, clear declaration that God is glorious and that sin is horrid and that God loves sinners. Those three things. The cross is a declaration of the worth of the glory of God and the horror of sin and the measure of God's love for sinners. And another word, another word for passing over sin is justification. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And I don't want to just talk about that little phrase at the end of verse 25. He passed over sins done before time. As though the only problem is what had happened before the cross or maybe what had happened before your conversion. As though justification is only something that handles past sins and then once your past is all cleaned up, we can say, you're on your own for the future and you got to work it out and if you sin, well, tough luck. you got to find another way to get that handled. That's not the point at all. I want to show... That justification or the passing over of sins is the passing over of yesterday's sins. Remember yesterday? Anybody sin yesterday? This morning's sins? How was it in the car coming to church? This afternoon's sins and tomorrow's sins and all the sins until you die. If there's not a way for all of those, that whole ugly thing in which we live to be solved outside of me, then there is no hope. The passing over that we're dealing with this morning is not just the passing over of David's sin or Moses' sin or Elijah's sin or all the sins that were handled in the bloody sacrifices of the bulls and goats. It's our sins yesterday, this morning, and tomorrow, and for the rest of our lives. Is there a covering for that? Verse 26 in our text says that two things happen when Jesus died, not just one thing. The death of Christ was to prove that God himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. God is vindicated in his justice and sinners, ungodly people, are justified through faith. Now, I'm not going to talk about faith this morning. Uh, we, we could spend a lot of time on that, but that's in keeping with my purpose in these eight messages. You remember, I have stressed that my deep desire for us is that we get our eyes in these eight weeks pretty much off of our subjective experiences. And I mean the very most positive subjective experience, faith in Jesus Christ. I want us this morning and every morning to... Set our eyes on what God did outside of us. I remember the first time in seminary when, oh, I wish I could remember his name. Uh, it just slips me right now because this isn't in my notes. Uh, I remember the first time my preaching professor stood up and used the Latin phrase extra nos, outside of us. And just drove it home. That salvation was accomplished outside of us. Outside of us. Outside of us. And that was such a revolutionary thought to me. That something happened outside of me. In history. Objective. Finished. Worked out. Done by God and His Son. 
that was decisive for me before I was involved in it by any subjective response at all. That's what we've been talking about. Getting our eyes outside. Now, what is this transaction called justification outside of me by which something happens for me that has eternal implications for my life? That's what we want to talk about this morning. And I have four observations to make about what is happening in this great truth of justification. And I want to pray with you before I go on because I'm so keenly aware that some of these things are very familiar. And yet they're glorious. It's like saying air is familiar, so it's no big deal, right? Or water or food is familiar, so it's not important. The the most precious things in life are the most familiar things. Let's pray. Lord, if If you don't come, there'll just be a jangle of words here. Ideals will be stimulated. Some people will be interested, some won't. But if you come, God, if you would draw near, if your Holy Spirit would come upon this congregation, the truth of justification of the ungodly through faith would transform many lives. It is a glorious thing, and I pray that the glory of it would be manifest by your Spirit, through your Word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one, being justified means being forgiven for all our sins. Let's look at Romans 4, verses 5 to 8. I'm going to jump ahead here from the text that was read for a minute. Romans 4, verse 5 Paul is unpacking the truth of justification and he uses the Old Testament Psalm 32 to show that at the heart of it is forgiveness. Verse 5. To one who does not work, that is, who does not try to get himself right with God through works, to one who does not work but trusts, that's the issue, trusts him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. So also, now here he he says, David says the same thing way back a long time ago. So also David pronounces the blessing among the man whom God reckons righteous apart from works. Namely, and now he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven. That's the word I'm, I'm latching on to right now. Whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. Now, we're right at the heart of justification here with those three glorious, precious phrases. I hope hope that you can take each of those three phrases taken from Psalm 32 and say them for yourself with deep conviction in the first person singular. Namely, iniquities are forgiven, sins are covered, The Lord does not reckon sin against us. Those three things. Iniquities are forgiven. Sins are covered. The Lord does not reckon. So put it it in these words. Can you for yourself? My sins are forgiven. My iniquities are covered. The Lord will never, not now or ever, Hold against me my sin. 
If you could say those three things over and over again to yourself with deep faith in God, you would become a valiant warrior for God. You would become a strong, strong person. Now notice, there's no limitation put on this forgiveness here as to the nature or the kind or the timing of sins. It's not as though, as some have said, well, it's past sins that are forgiven. It doesn't say that, nor does it say only one particular brand of sin, nor any particular quantity of sins. It says, especially in that last phrase of verse 8, the Lord will not, notice the emphatic strength of that, the Lord will not reckon sin, that singular all-encompassing word, sin against us. It's not just past, it's not just present, it's not just future, it's the whole thing. He won't reckon it against us. We'll come back to that. How can he do this? Look at verse 24 now, back in our text, chapter 3. On what basis could he possibly just pass over, blot out, not reckon all the sins that his people ever commit? It says in verse 24 that we are justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now there's the answer to how you can do it. It is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does that word redemption mean? Redemption means a loosing or freeing or releasing. And so the, the essence of the matter is there was when Jesus died a freeing from the guilt and power of sin in your life. There was a, a releasing that happened. Now, how did that happen? Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so the curse that was resting on you, that held you in bondage, that locked you up in hopelessness and condemnation, was taken and put on Christ and lifted off of you. Or 1 Peter 3 or 2, 24, it says, Christ bore our sins in his body. And so redemption means that the sin that weighed down on us, bringing us to condemnation and execution and bondage, was put on Jesus. And Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of it. All of it. And of all of us in Christ. Justification, the forgiveness of sins, comes through a redemption, which means a releasing through the substitution of Jesus for us. So that he bears our curse, he bears our sin, he bears our guilt, he bears our condemnation. And in bearing all of that, we are free from it, released it is a glorious, glorious truth that forgiveness of sin, all sin, comes through the death of Jesus. Now mark this. I want to add one other thing, which is, to me, perhaps the most glorious angle on it of all. Christ only suffered once for all. Now that is tremendously important. Christ suffered once. His 
suffering and death is never in any way effectually reenacted in the Lord's Supper or in the Mass. He died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, I want you to get this because picture this. It's the once for allness in history outside of us objectively that guarantees that all of our sin is covered past, present, and future. If it were such that the death of Christ were a kind of parable that we reenact week by week or month by month, then indeed we would have no security that all my sin is gone, is taken care of. But if it's true, as Hebrews 9.26 says, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, then it's over. It's over. The sin that I will commit on Monday morning, tomorrow morning, was put away 2,000 years ago. Finished. Over. That sin is over. It's gone. It will not be held against me. Now, if that doesn't grip you as the most glorious news in all the world, I can't imagine what would be good news. That all the sins that I have committed will commit, perhaps even while I'm preaching by some attitude of mine, or tomorrow will not be held against me. Why? Because at the end of the age, Christ appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Or here's another statement of it in Hebrews 9, 12. He entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves. That's why it had to be done over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Once for all, at Calvary, during three hours of suffering, it was finished. So that all the sins, past, present, and future, are covered. He will not hold against us any of our sins anymore. It's a glorious thing. This connection between the once-for-allness of His death and the totality of our forgiveness. Number two, being justified means being reckoned righteous with God's righteousness. Or God's righteousness being counted as ours. In other words, we, we have really, this is two sides of one coin. I, I know this. What I've just said in point one about the forgiveness of sins is one side of the coin. Our sins are taken away, all of them, once for all, when Jesus died for those sins decisively. And then you turn, you turn that coin over and something positive, that's kind of a negative thing, get rid of sin. And positively, the same truth is asserted by the righteousness of God is given to sinners. It is counted to sinners. Let's go to verses 21 and 22 in our text, the ones that Tim read in Romans 3. Verses 21 and 22. Just before verse 21, Paul had said the devastating word, No human will ever be justified by works of the law. You will never get right with God by your works. You will never have a righteousness that suffices with God by virtue of your works. 
It's over. There is no way to heaven by works. Then he gives the positive alternative in verses 21 and 22. But now, the righteousness of God, of God, has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith. On the way from where to where through faith. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In other words, it's coming through faith to you. The righteousness is God's righteousness. It's His. It's perfect. It's holy. It's utterly unimpeachable. It's all we'd ever need. And now it is on the way, not through works, as though you could somehow imitate it or earn it, but through faith as a gift to, to rest upon you and clothe you and be there for you, covering you. Let's tie this in with last week. Last week, I said that the purpose of the cross was to vindicate the righteousness of God. Verses 25 and 26. To uphold the glory of God and show that when He passed over sin, He was righteous. Now, now I ask you this morning, why, for you, is it so crucial that the righteousness of God be held up and not be allowed to crash? Why is it so important that Jesus vindicate and uphold the righteousness of God? And the answer is because we want it. We need it. If it isn't upheld, we'll never be clothed with it. He upholds the righteousness of God that we might receive it as a gift. That's the connection between last week and this week. In vindicating the righteousness of God, He sustains the very thing which God now offers us through faith in that death. The righteousness of God. So not only are our sins totally done away with, but the, the, the righteousness of God is given to us as a free gift. Let me read... For you, or you can look it up with me if you want, from 2 Corinthians 5.21, the most breath, breathtaking statement, I think, in all of the New Testament about the imputation or the reckoning or the counting or the ascribing of God's righteousness to us. This verse is an awesome verse, and you should pray even as we read it, that God would open your heart to receive it and feel appropriate affections that correspond with its worth. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, God made Him, that is Christ, God made Christ to be sin. God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is a magnificent exchange. Jesus never sinned. He knew no sin. He was perfectly righteous. He upheld the glory of God in every feeling that He felt and every emotion that He had, every decision He made, every act He did. He upheld the glory of God. And you and I sin every day. We blackball God day and night. We give Him a vote of no confidence. Thank you as we go our own way every day of our lives. And God says to this perfect Son of the living God, I will take their sin and make you sin. 
And I will take my righteousness, which you have so gloriously upheld in your sacrifice, and give it away from you to them. Now that is the gospel. Jesus was not made a sinner. It doesn't say sinner. He was made sin, meaning God looked upon him as our sin. God reckoned our sin to be his. God treated him as though he were a sinner and poured out his wrath upon him. And all of the punishment that was owing to our unrighteousness fell upon Jesus. And then, in the same kind of reckoning way, he took the righteousness of God that was so vindicated there and he applied it to sinners like us. Through faith, he applied it to us. And he treats us as though it were our righteousness. This was an alien sin that brought him to death. And this is an alien righteousness that brings us to life. I stress that word alien because I want to make something very clear here. In three weeks I'm going to talk about the work of God in sanctification. That is the process by which you, by God, are actually made to be good people, righteous people. This is not the point this morning. Please, if you've never heard this doctrine unfolded before this morning, mark this distinction. This text and what I'm saying right now does not mean that in justification you are made a good person. It does not mean you are made a good person. Something is happening outside of you by which your sins are forgiven and God's righteousness is imparted to you before you even begin to become a good person. Justification is an external transaction in which we hope and which we link up to by casting our ungodly selves on Christ by faith and, and hold to Him that the, the ungodly will be justified. Now this is very crucial that you make this distinction because if we get these two things reversed, you'll never get to heaven. I just thought of a new way yesterday of stating this and I'm going to try it out on you and see as you apply it, pray it and live it whether or not you think it really accords with scripture and is, is getting at what uh, the Bible says. It goes like this. The only sin that you can overcome in daily life is a forgiven sin. Now that's another way of saying justification is the foundation of sanctification. If you reverse it and say, well, in order to get righteous, in order to be accepted, in order to be forgiven, in order to have the gift of righteousness, I must overcome a sin so that it would then be forgotten by God or forgiven by God or put away by God. And you reverse those two, you're in the grip of legalism and will never make it to heaven. The only sin that you can make headway in conquering by the power of God is a forgiven sin. So if you have a bad habit, which all of you do, if you're human, I believe, I have some that I'm against and I hate. If you have a bad habit, what I'm telling you this morning is the only 
gospel headway, the only evangelical headway, and I'm distinguishing gospel and evangelical from legal and legalistic. You can make some legal headway against a bad habit, but you know what you produce in, in its place? Pharisees. The only sins that you can make gospel headway against are forgiven sins. That is, you have to walk out of here at the end of this service believing what I have just been teaching is yours. Namely, that when Christ died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, every sin, every bad habit, every execution of that bad habit was covered in Jesus. He's gone then. And on that foundation alone, will you be able to make headway in actually overcoming it? Don't get them reversed. Number three. These last two are very brief. Being justified means being loved by God and treated with grace. Being loved by God and treated with grace. Look at verses 6 to 8 of chapter 5. That's just right across the page in my Bible. Romans 5, 6 to 8. While we were yet weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Why, one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for a good man, one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Christ to forgive your sins and to give you the gift of righteousness came from the love of God for you. If God didn't love you, there would have been no problem to solve in the cross. Because if he didn't love you, he could have handled the sin problem without any offense to his son whatsoever. He would have just condemned us all to hell. And that would have settled it perfectly. He would have been righteous and all accounts would have been settled. There would have been no need for the cross. There would have been no problem to solve whatsoever. Except for the love of God. It's the fact that God loves you that created a problem for God. That he, out of love, would pass over sin, created a problem for righteousness and his love for his glory. And it's the cross that brings the love of God for sinners and the love of God for the glory that they scorned into perfect harmony. Because Jesus vindicated that glory while saving sinners. You are loved in the act of justification. Verse 17 of chapter 5 is a beautiful statement of the freeness of the grace of this gift. It says, if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So love results in an outpouring of grace which issues in gifts like forgiveness and the righteousness of God clothing you. Finally, justification means being secured by God forever. Turn with me to chapter 8 for one last look. Chapter 8 verse 30. 
It means being secured by God forever and ever. It says, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he justified, called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you're justified this morning, you will be glorified. Nobody falls out between those last two phrases of verse 30 in Romans 8. Those whom he justified, he glorified. You will make it to glory if you have made it into justification. If justification is yours by simply receiving it through faith, you will be glorified. Now, how can that be? It's because the death of Jesus and its effect on his people is objective, decisive, definitive, and invincible. This is something that is so misunderstood in the evangelical world. As though the death of Christ just creates an array of possibilities for people. What the death of Christ does is achieve justification for God's people and secures glorification for those very people. It's not as though God died so that today it could have the effect of salvation and tomorrow the people are lost. And the next day they're saved and the next day they're lost and the next day they're saved. Some achievement of the cross. Some worth of the blood of Jesus. What God achieved when Christ died was the justification of all his people and the securing of their everlasting glorification. Let me show you that in verse 32 of this text. Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not... It's a rhetorical question and you know what the answer is. Surely he will give us all things with him. That means if he did not spare his son, but sent him that you might be justified, you most definitely will be glorified. It is not as though the cross achieves half a salvation for the people of God and then watches them drop into destruction saying, oh, I guess the cross wasn't really strong enough to achieve all that it was designed to achieve by the Father for His elect. Let me show you this in one more verse and then we're done. The next verse, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, what's the answer to that? Nobody will make a charge stick against God's elect. Why? Because it is God who justifies. Now that means if God has justified once for all through the sacrifice of His Son, nobody at any time in the future will be able to make a charge stick against the justified. Therefore, they will be glorified. What God did at the cross is of infinite power and value. It will never lose any for whom it was designed to achieve everlasting salvation. And I just pray earnestly that God would now grant as we close here, and as I pray, that your heart would leap out for this gift. You are forgiven. You have the gift of righteousness. You are loved by God. In justification through Christ. Just take it. Let's pray. Almighty God and merciful Heavenly Father, I praise you. I praise you and bless you 
for this objective achievement of the cross. What a great work you did. What a magnificent display of justifying, sanctifying, glorifying grace. And I pray now that the once-for-allness of it would so grip us that when we leave, we will say, My sins are forgiven. My iniquities are covered. The Lord will not impute my sin against me. I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus for everyone in this room.